we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies. And our guest this week is someone I met when I was in Israel recently on other business, but he is the Government and Communications Director for a think tank that does work that's comparable to what the Center for Immigration Studies does here. His name is Akiva Lamb, and the organization is the Israeli Immigration Policy Center, which deals mainly with illegal immigration issues, which are significant in Israel, as they are in all developed countries. People sneaking in, people claiming asylum, people overstaying visas, all of those kind of issues that CIS also deals with, the IIPC deals with in Israel. So Akiva, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for agreeing to come on. Thanks for having me. And if you could just start out with telling listeners what is the Israeli Immigration Policy Center, sort of when did you start, what do you do, that sort of thing. All right. So the IIPC was established in 2012 as an immediate response to the massive wave of infiltrators coming in from Africa. This was mainly from Sudan and Eritrea due to humanitarian reasons, but also for a lot of economics. This was an immigration wave coming throughout to Europe and also Israel. Just for listeners to imagine it, they were coming through Egypt and the Sinai and then crossing into Israel there. Is that correct? Right. So I guess to our American listeners, this would sound a lot like what you have in Mexico. Right. The border was completely open and they were just coming in beginning from approximately 2006, if I'm not mistaken. And they were just coming in. They were at the peak, at the high. They were close to 70,000 in total. In one year, you mean? Or all together? No, no, all together. Right. They, they were just coming in thousands every day. But after we looked, we started dealing with this immigration problem, we discovered that this isn't the only issue that Israel is dealing with, but there are steady currents of illegals coming in from Eastern Europe and plenty of foreign workers who stay in Israel long after their permits have expired. And we realized that immigration issue is something that hasn't been dealt with in Israel per se. Israel is like America, an immigration-based state. We promote and encourage immigration mainly by identity criteria. Meaning if in America or Canada or other states, you have the main criteria is be legal and help the local economy. In Israel, the main criteria is your Jewish identity. So it's different and it's unique to Israel. We work in four main fields, in research, advocacy, government relations, and legal affairs. What we do is monitor legal ruling, parliament or government decisions legislative initiatives. We also initiate laws. We promote 
a conservative approach with decision makers. And our main goal is to preserve the identity of the Jewish state. So this was only in 2012. And, you know, Israel's obviously been around for much longer than that, since 1948. So my right. sense is, and you can, you know, sort of correct me if I'm wrong, but in the Israeli public, my sense is most people thought of immigration as, you know, people coming from Eastern Europe or the Arab world, Jews fleeing the Soviet Union, that sort of thing, and moving to Israel. And so that was the paradigm through which people viewed immigration. In a similar sense to the United States, where we sort of think of immigration as Ellis Island and people steaming into New York Harbor, and conditions changed both here and in Israel, and that was the genesis of your organization and, frankly, of mine, to look at what the new challenges related to immigration were for our respective countries. Would that be a fair way to put it? Yes. As to Israel, most of our immigration, I'd say up until the beginning of this millennium, was what you were talking about, Jewish immigration. We call Aliyah, and translate it into uprising. Rising up. I mean, rising, up, uprising yeah. is more like a rebellion. But yeah, sort of right, going, right, going up yeah. to Israel is what Aliyah means. Yeah. But yeah, your uh, New York Harbor description reminds me of tales of my family, my great-grandparents coming to the States from uh, Ukraine, fleeing there back in the 1800s. Right. So yeah, but, but now things are different. Now you have people crossing in the borders, not coming in a country in order to be part of it, but infiltrating into it. And that also changes the identity of the state completely. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about the Jewish state or the American state or any other, because you have to control the borders in order to know who's coming in and in order to deal with them. I mean, infiltrators or uh, illegals, they're people. They right. have hopes, they have dreams, they want to do something in their life. And as a state, as a country, you need to make sure that their hopes coincides with the country's hopes and make sure that they help the country and not create different problems. Right. Yeah. Well put. Now, I want to talk about some of Israel's immigration challenges now, but let's start with the one that led to IIPC's founding, which was African illegal immigrants infiltrating through the Sinai and into Israel that way. In 2012, Israel built a wall. If you could maybe tell us a little bit about that and has that worked, what's the story there? Right. So the wall is a very big story because what would happen was the infiltrators from Africa, they would come in, they would cross the border. A lot of times they would have smugglers help them out. And there they would meet IDF soldiers. That's the Israeli Defense Force, the Israeli army, in other words, right? Yeah, Israeli soldiers, they would meet them there. And, you know, a soldier is not prepared to deal with a civilian crossing a border. I mean, right. at least in Israel, it's like that. In Israel, if somebody's trying to cross the border, and this happened plenty of times in Israel's history, it would usually be a terror threat. And this wasn't a terror threat. It was a civilian threat. Mm-hmm. So what would happen is the army would, they would station them in areas nearby, but eventually this wasn't a problem that the army could deal with. And eventually most of them would concentrate in Southern Tel Aviv. So in other words, they were released at some point. Were they asking for asylum? Was that the kind of the means they used to stay in Israel? Yeah, they asked for asylum. A lot of them back then in Sudan, they had a civil war. 
Right. In Eritrea, the government there is, let's say, their uh, human rights approach is, <laughs> say the least, questionable. Right. Was questionable. Right. But legally, I must say that according to international law, if you want to get a refuge status, you need the first country that you cross is obligated to give you that status. Right. In both cases, that first country would be Egypt, right. not Israel. Right. So legally, Israel wasn't and isn't obligated to give these people asylum under the international law. Was Egypt not taking these people back? In other words, was there... No. Yes. no so you couldn't them. just push them back across into Sinai? <laughs> no, that did not work. Interesting. I wouldn't say that Egypt also encouraged them, but they weren't aiming for Egypt anyway. Right, they were right, aiming for, as you mentioned, the developed countries. Mm-hmm. Just exactly like you'd have people from uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, or Iran going and crossing to Europe from east to west, or right. from uh, northern Africa crossing the ocean to Italy and to Greece. These people walked by foot through the desert. Or from Central America crossing through Mexico. It's exactly the same right, thing exactly, as we're dealing exactly. with. Exactly. It's the right. same thing all over the world. Mm-hmm. And what happened was these people concentrated in southern Tel Aviv, the local residents had two options. The neighborhood that they cherished and loved was now changing. And if they could afford it, they left. If they can't afford it, then they're stuck there with all these infiltrators. Most of them, by the way, were men. Right. And now, 10 years later, I could tell you the difference between refugees and infiltrators. In the war between Russia and Ukraine, you have Ukrainians running out of the country because their country is bombed by Russia. Right. And so the population is very different. You see women, you see children. Right. And in 2012, with these people from Africa, you didn't see women and children. You saw mainly men. So they were labor migrants, basically, just pretending yeah. to be asylum seekers. Right. But as you know, and I, when we talked about it, when we met a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned that this is the same phenomenon in the States too. Once they're here, they request for asylum. And if that doesn't work, they try a different legal loophole. And if that doesn't work, they try it again and peel it and repeal it. And what happens throughout the years is that they actually grow roots here. Right. They're here. So they find a job, whether it's legal or not. They find a partner, whether it's legal or not. They have children, whether it's legal or not, and they're basically stuck here. Right. And it becomes hard to deport them as a practical matter. And also politically, it becomes hard to deport them. Right. And in Tel Aviv, one out of every nine births in the city is an illegal alien. Wow. So Tel Aviv, which is the largest metropolitan of Israel, is basically being overtaken and it's become harder and harder to deport them. So before we continue with what Israel is facing with people who are already there, if we could finish mm-hmm. up the story about Sinai, the wall got built and the wall, as I understand it, is a real wall and it's not metaphorical, it's not electronic, it's, it's an actual wall and it goes all the way from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea. Is that correct? And did it work? Yeah. So what we have, the wall is... 241 kilometers long. It was built, as you mentioned, from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea, and it worked. But I know in uh, with the previous president of the United States, he mentioned a lot the Israeli wall, the Sinai wall, right. hoping to build one uh, between America and Mexico. I don't know if it's so possible, but I think that alongside with 
physical wall, you also need a big legal wall. Right. Meaning the problem with immigration is not only the people that have already infiltrated or crossed the border and already in the country, but the question is what what's the single that they're sending out to the people from their home countries? Right. Meaning exactly. if they get a message that everything is fine, they could get work permits, they could start a family here. You're basically giving them a green light, telling them, hey, fellows, come on in. Everything is fine and dandy, and we can have our own lives here. Right. So in other words, you need to turn the magnet off that's pulling people there to begin with. Yeah, but if you put a wall and you say, you're not welcome, if you want to come here, there's a legal process you need to go through. You need to file a request legally. And in America, you have the green card or a visa. Right. That's what you have in most of the countries in the world. So that's the way. And with the legal wall that you need to put is making it harder for them to work or giving them some encouragement to leave. In 2015, the center initiated what was called the deposit law, meaning we looked at the illegal infiltrators that came from Africa and we figured out that when you have illegals in the country, it's a problem because on one hand, you want to disencourage them from coming in. So you want to make it harder for them to work. Right. But on the other hand, you don't allow them to work. They become welfare cases. And that's the best part. If it's the worst case, then they become actual criminals. Right. So country decided to overlook the work ban. And what was demanded from the illegal uh, aliens was that basically they would have to put aside a portion of their income. Because what happens a lot with, doesn't matter if it's legal or illegal immigrants, is once they make better money in the country that they came to, they send some of their earnings back to their families. Of course. And what we wanted to do was to encourage them to leave. So according to the law, some of the money would be deposited on the side, waiting for them to leave, and they would get it only once they left. Meaning we supposedly decreased their income, making it harder for them to stay here. Also giving them a reward for leaving. This worked pretty well. And we have a current stream of 1,500 illegals leaving the country, mainly to Canada, almost every year. Hmm. And from all the money that has been deposited, 23 million shekels have already been withdrawn. So this has been really effective. There is one small problem (laughs) we're trying to face with towards the new uh, government and the new Knesset. Mm Mm-hmm is that in 2020, the high court decided to annul some parts of it due to property rights. Right. It's a very technical piece, but basically in Israel, when you have something like a pension, so the employer puts 7.5% of the amount each month and the worker needs to put 2.5%. Sure, right. So we did the same thing with the deposit law and the workers... What the high court annulled was the uh, workers' side of the deposit. So we have most of the deposits still working, but a small part was annulled. Well, hopefully this will still work. How is it that Canada, how is it these people are going to Canada? In other words, why is Canada accepting Israel's illegal aliens? How does that work? That's a good question. (laughs) Okay. I'd send it to Ontario and ask them. Okay. But uh, (laughs) what, what I think is happening is that. These people have been, in the past few years, in a Western country, adapting to it to some extent. 
they don't have any children, the people that go to Canada. Ah, okay. So that's easier. Maybe Canada needs people, so that's yeah. what they're doing. But I'm not, I'm not honestly sure what they're interested in. In a system. sense, it's not your problem because as long as they'll take them, then you're okay. I wanted to. You mentioned children, and also going back to your reference to one out of nine births in Tel Aviv being to illegal immigrants. What is the situation with citizenship at birth of children in the United States and Canada? for instance, uh, are only the only two developed countries left in the world where anyone born on the territory automatically becomes a citizen. That's not the case in Israel. Is that correct? No, that is definitely not the case. I also, I'll stress that out, but also mentioning that foreign workers in Israel, if they have a child, technically, that's their ticket out of here. Oh, so they're violating the terms of they're their admission? The oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but the problem is, as I mentioned before, nobody wants to deport a baby. Nobody wants to deport a child. Right. And what happens is a lot of times is the uh, immigration authority is failed to do their jobs, or sometimes they don't even know about the baby because not all the government bodies are in sync right. all the time. Right. And what happens is you have these children born and raised here in Israel, and although they have no legal status, they learn Hebrew. They learn Israeli culture, and when they grow up, all they know is Israel. Right. And then when you want to deport them and you say, guys, it's very nice that you know Hebrew, and it's very nice that you're educated here, but you don't have any legal status. And on the other side, you have a child or a teenager saying, this is what I know. Some of them even will tell you they want to go to defend the country. They want to join the uh, Israeli Defense Force. Right. In the Israeli society, the Israeli Defense Force is a very significant factor in getting accepted to society. And a lot of people, I won't say tested, but if they serve in an elite unit, it means something. Right. And when you have a foreigner who has no status here and says, I want to be admitted to the army, it means something. But it's also an absurd. Have there been proposals to, as there have in this country, although it hasn't been enacted, proposals to let people basically launder their status by serving in the military and then they would you know get citizenship when they were discharged there haven't been proposals but there have been i'd say private cases of people who really wanted to volunteer and were accepted and eventually that did happen interesting and they were as you described laundry it's a big problem right a few months ago when there was the International Refugee Day. Right. And the head of the committee, member of Knesset, Ibtisam Marana, she hosted a lot of African asylum seekers, teenagers, who came and told their story. And their story is a touching story. Mm-hmm. They were all speaking in Hebrew, some with accents, some without accents. They were describing how they grew up here and they studied here. And everything they know is here in Israel. They don't want to go back to their homes. But on the other hand, the universities in Israel aren't accepting them. And the problem is, on one hand, you could just say, okay, so just accept them and everything will be fine. Right. But then again, if you accept them, what signal are you sending to the people who haven't come here yet? Exactly. That you're sending them a signal that's saying, green light, guys, come on in. You get free education too. And you could become Israeli, and that's just something that we cannot accept mm-hmm. for obvious identity reasons. And what happens is instead of giving these children 
hopes and dreams about a good Israeli life, these people are actually being misled to believe that something sometime will change. And it's not going to happen. Right. We hold the position that aside of a strong and high fence that we mentioned before, you must have a legal system that sends the right signal to those people who haven't yet attempted to come into the country. And we believe that the best interest for these children is to stay together with their parents, even if their parents are illegal and even if their parents need to be deported. I mean, what's the alternative? You'd have the parents deported, but their child would be left behind alone in a foreign country. Yeah, we face a lot of these same uh, issues. Although there's one, it seems to me, and this literally just occurred to me now, but there seems to me there could be one way out given Israel's sort of different self-conception as a nation is that they could convert to Judaism. Has that happened? And would that make a difference? That hasn't happened. That would be something to consider, but I don't think it happened. And also that <laughs> that would bring us into a uh, religious, much more strict rule than just the local clerk at the immigration authority. It's not so easy. No, no. I mean, uh, yeah. Say, okay, I convert. You need to make a whole life-changing process in order for that to happen. And so far, we haven't seen anything like that happen yet. That's interesting. I had a few more questions about this issue of overstaying foreign workers, that sort of thing. But first of all, do you have a few numbers just so people can get a sense of what the size of the illegal population is compared to Israel's population in general? The percentage is much less than here, I think. You're facing a somewhat smaller problem. But if you could just give us just literally two or three numbers on what is the scale of this issue. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm not sure percentage-wise. I know in America you have 11 million uh, Something like illegals. That. Right. Yeah, out of 350 million. Mm-hmm. It's a very big number. So here in Israel, we have approximately 9 million citizens. Mm-hmm. Six and a half of them are Jewish. Right. So you have a large Muslim minority. Right. Out of the foreigners, you have 26,000 African infiltrators. So there, there has been a lot of work done from that, uh, the peak of the 70,000. I see. Okay. Oh, so, so most of them have left. Yeah, but uh, I'll get to a, yeah, a okay. little point that changes that. Yeah. <laughs> 100,000 legal foreign workers. Okay. 22,000 illegal workers. And according to the recent report from the immigration authority, about 30,000 overstayers, you know, tourists or foreign workers who, with their permits expired. Interesting. Okay. But these numbers do not include children. Right. At all. Right. So for the African infiltrators, out of the 26,000 have 12,000 children. Interesting. Okay. Who are themselves without legal status? They're essentially illegal, exactly. illegal aliens. Yeah, they're, they're all illegal, but they're not counted in official right. reports. Interesting. Also, the illegal foreign workers have about nine thousand children with them. Right. But from twenty-two, that's more like thirty, and so it's complicated. But I'd say it's about in total, all the illegal people in Israel are about a hundred thousand, give or take, including right. children. Right. Interesting. So it's. It's definitely a much smaller problem because if you've got 9 million people, that's you know maybe 1%, a little more, 1.5% of the population is uh, illegal immigrants, which is you know, bad enough. But I mean, in the United States, it's you know, more than that. It's maybe 3 or 
so anyway, I mean, just I just wanted to give people a scope of what the yeah, yeah. issue was. But now you'd mentioned legal foreign workers. What kind of foreign worker program? In other words, are there agricultural workers? Where are they coming from? I, I know they used to come some from Eastern Europe, some from Thailand, that sort of thing. So if you could just give us a little quick yeah, overview yeah. of that. So it's actually quite funny. Every, every country provides specific professions. Right. Like each country has their own expertise. Anyway, a lot of construction workers come from China. Agriculture workers come from Thailand. Assistants, like not nurses, but people who take care of right, elderlies. Right. Uh, a lot of them come from the Philippines. Hmm. The African community, again, illegal, but they're already here. Right. They do a lot of kitchen work at restaurants. Right. Dishwashing and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think from Europe, you have also, they come into high tech and things like that. Interesting. Very interesting. We're uh, running short on time here, but one thing I did want to just touch on is, do you face in Israel, you sort of alluded to this a little bit, a similar kind of anti-borders, anti-enforcement element in politics? You had mentioned that uh, member definitely, of the, yeah, definitely, yeah. I'd say the Israeli left. I assume it's also like the American left. They live in a world without any borders. It's true also to the Palestinian issue, but it's also true for this. Every time there's an issue of any illegal alien who needs to be deported, no matter what the situation is, they will always support him. Right. And what happens is that sometimes there are cases where you need to be a little more considerate and maybe you need to be a little less harsh on the policy. And you can't because it's an ongoing battle. For instance, last week in one of the Israeli newspapers, maybe you know it, Haaretz. It's yes. Internationally, it's one of the most uh, known ones. Israel's New York Times kind of is the way it's often described. Yeah. Yeah. So the about a case of a girl who is autistic. She was born in the Philippines. Her mom uh, abandoned her. She grew up with a relative. Then she came with her father to Israel. Her father had relations with another man in Israel, so they were here. But his relationship ended, and he left the country. But the girl stayed here. Hmm, And she got into some foster care, and now she's 13 years old. And they're concerned that she's going to be deported. Now, in any normal situation, even we would say, you know what, maybe we should help her at least till the authorities in the Philippines wake up and realize that there's a Filipino citizen who needs to be taken care of and needs to be helped. Right. We could accept that. But what we saw is that they took this case of a very poor teenager who was in a in a severe situation, and they want to expand it onto all foreign teenagers right. who are not in such a severe situation, and they want to stress that point and say they all need to stay, and that's not something we could accept, and that's something that is very problematic when you want to run a consistent policy, which again you can consider sometimes having lower the bar. Right. To some extent, or make exceptions. Not entirely. Right. Yeah. yeah, you can make exceptions. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a very familiar story in this country as well. I assume the same thing happens in Europe as well. It's part of the same playbook. We've pretty much come to the end of our time here. I just wanted to make sure people who were interested could check out the website. It's israeli-ipc.org.il. And there's an English language uh, option there as well as the Hebrew version of the site. I assume there's more on the Hebrew site, but there is an English language, at least a main page. And just to reiterate, it's the Israeli Immigration Policy Center, Akiva Lamb has been our guest. He's the government and communications director there. And for people who are interested, is there information at the website about how to support your center? You all are a nonprofit under Israeli law. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, we're a nonprofit under Israeli law. And uh, yes, there's definitely option to help. You could reach out to us through the site or on our Facebook page. We also have a Twitter page. Oh, you do have a Twitter. Okay. What is the Twitter handle? Twitter handle is Israeli IPC. Okay. At Israeli IPC. Okay. Actually, I need to yeah. follow it too. Although I assume most of the content is going to be in Hebrew. Is that correct? It's, yeah. 99% in Hebrew. Okay. Well, good. Akiva, I really appreciate your time and for sort of giving us a look at Israel's immigration challenges. And they really do in many ways mirror or echo those in the United States. And again, I expect in Europe, this is a common set of challenges that all the developed countries in the world are facing. And it's good to see that the issues we face, while they're not identical, are very similar to those that other developed countries are facing. So um, thanks again, Akiva Lamb, for joining us. And maybe if there are new developments in Israel at some point in the future, uh, you'll be willing to come on again. Sure. Be glad to. Thank you very much, Mark. And finally, I wanted to rant a little bit about a New York Times story that appeared this week. And the story itself is not really the issue. It's by Eileen Sullivan, who's a real reporter. And the story was about illegal border crossers whom the administration has let go in Portland, Maine, specifically. So this took, you know, work reporting. She spent time talking to a lot of people in Portland. And it's an interesting, informative feature of the kind that the New York Times, that's what it exists to do. That's why we have this newspaper like this. My issue, though, is the headline, which, of course, reporters aren't responsible for. The headline is, Biden administration has admitted one million migrants to await hearings. The substance of the headline is not incorrect. It's neutrally put. The problem is, That's not really what the story is about. The New York Times has not reported this important news development that the administration's releases of illegal border crossers into the United States have exceeded one million. They simply haven't reported it anywhere. And so this was the newspaper, the newsroom management's way of kind of cleaning up this fact by sticking it on top of an interesting long feature about illegal border crossers who have been released into Portland, but the headline is not the point of this story. And what it points to is that not just the New York Times, but no other news outlet has reported this fact two and a half months after Art Arthur on our staff, Andrew Arthur, has written about it. He's been referring to it constantly. It's about 1.1 million 
illegal immigrants released into the United States through June. The number is significantly higher now. I mean, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's almost certainly going to be something like 1.3 million now. And this was something that Art found in court-ordered disclosures that ICE had to make, that DHS was required by a judge to make as part of the lawsuit, the Texas lawsuit about the Remain in Mexico program. It's public documents. We found it. We reported it. And no one else has picked up on it. As far as I can tell, I haven't seen any other reporters talking about this. And yet, it's hard to say that this isn't a news story. And the other interesting issue is that the only reason we know about this is because of court-ordered reporting that DHS was required to make. But since the Remain in Mexico lawsuit has now ended, the Supreme Court basically ruled sort of in favor of the administration, although it could end up coming back. The administration is now out from under that reporting requirement. So we don't know the number of border jumpers this administration has released through July or through August. All we know is the number through June because that was the last time they had to report it. My point here is sort of twofold. This administration is not transparent at all. And too much of the media is okay with that lack of transparency. There's no reason that the New York Times or any other newspaper shouldn't have been all over this story a long time ago. And again, I'm not criticizing this particular reporter because she's doing a long feature piece. But the editors were basically trying to sort of clean up the fact, sort of remedial reporting by sticking this only marginally related headline onto this feature story as a way of saying, well, look, we reported it. Now, it was two and a half months after the fact, but at least they got around to including it in their newspaper somewhere when, in fact, this should have been a regular freestanding news story in the New York Times and, by the way, the Washington Post and the AP and everywhere else months ago. Pardon the rant, but this is the kind of thing that goes beyond just simple media bias. This is really more media malpractice. In any case, this is Mark Krikorian for the Center for Immigration Studies. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy, and I hope you'll tune in next week.